to Ask an Addiction Specialist. I'm here, Bob Weathers, and I'm with my friend. Odie Martinez. Hi, it's good to have uh, you with me, Odie. We're being produced, thank you. We're being produced in the studio live today by Austin Armstrong, right off screen here. Thank you, Austin, for your presence. Uh, Really happy to have you back with us and looking forward to today's topic and our interaction today. By way of introduction, just quickly, my background's in psychology. I'm a professor of clinical psychology here locally in Southern California at California Southern University. In fact, I've been very busily working the last couple of days getting caught up on uh, some doctoral dissertations that I'm chairing, uh, which have to do with uh, addiction and recovery, looking at it from a psychological perspective. So this is very much um, uh, kind of the, fore, the foreground of my own, uh, my own uh, training. I also uh, am involved and active as a recovery coach. I work locally here in Orange County. I work with Beginnings Treatment Centers, who are our hosts for Ask an Addiction Specialist. I want to express a gratitude to them for, for hosting us each week in our podcast. And I'm coming right now, as I do each week, from the men's group that I, that I facilitate each Wednesday afternoon. So fresh out of uh, working with the men. I also work with individuals and families who are in recovery from addiction, either uh, those that are actively themselves in, in recovery uh, uh, from their own addictions or the loved ones of those that are in recovery. And so that's, that's a bit of the background that I bring to the conversation. Mm-hmm. Odie has joined me and we create kind of a counterpoint in our conversations and you become part of that counterpoint as you engage with us. A couple of things. One is that you're welcome to write in thoughts, questions, comments as we move through the material today. Invite you to uh, write in the chat box, for example, in Facebook if you're joining us there or through other uh, means through YouTube. And uh, Austin will be the moderator. He'll communicate your comments and questions to Odie and I. Mm-hmm. And uh, Odie and me will do the best we can to translate those into our conversation in real time. So... Thank you for your presence. Also, in case you haven't been in previous podcasts, I want to direct your attention to, we now have archives in a number of locations. I mentioned YouTube, uh, uh, Facebook under Ask an Addiction Specialist. You can also go to Beginnings Treatment Center and see the podcast archive there. So we have nearly a year's worth of podcasts covering all kinds of topics related to addiction and recovery. Mm -hmm. So welcome you to, uh, uh, to those resources as well. Last week, we talked about healing the black hole of shame. We've been focusing on shame. Today is a little bit of a, a, a step aside from the topic specifically of shame and how that re- relates to co- recovery. Mm-hmm. It still may come up today. In fact, I suspect it will because from a psychological perspective, shame is one of the chief impediments to successful sustained recovery, mm-hmm. which is why we spend so much time on it because um, uh, it relates to a lot of stress in, uh, interiorly for a person, and that stress translates oftentimes as higher relapse risk. So mm-hmm. there's the logic for that. But today we're going to step back from the canvas, so to speak, and we're going to talk about growing up in recovery. In fact, my title is an odd phrase today. It's growing back up in recovery. And so that's our topic, and I'll flesh out what I mean by that kind of odd use of the English language uh, here in just a minute. <clears throat> what I'd like to do is begin by reviewing something that we covered Uh, In a recent podcast, we talked about Howard Gardner, a professor of education at at, uh, Harvard University, who's done the kind of uh, seminal work looking at what he refers to as multiple intelligences. And so we'll start by talking about intelligences, and then we'll tie it into what happens in addiction and what ideally happens in recovery. Mm -hmm. And so we talked about different kinds of intelligence, and I'm going to ask my buddy here, Odie, if you... If you have any thoughts about what what comes to your mind, Odie, when you think of the word intelligence? Intelligence, uh, to me, that would be having uh, not only experience, but also knowledge in a certain area of yeah. expertise or a non-expertise. So, like, uh, I have intelligence in when to take a nap during the day. Oh, that's good. That's good. That's good. I like very much your broad definition. <laughs> a lot of, and we're going to come back to that. A lot of people will think of intelligence by what's kind of drilled into our heads growing up through the school system. Mm-hmm. And so intelligence is almost 
always associated with intelligence in academic subjects. Mm -hmm. And so you think about that, and, and, it, and it's a very important kind of intelligence. For example, IQ, which is just shorthand for intelligence quotient, right. really ties into certain kinds of skills that are uh, emphasized in school, specifically quantitative skills, working with numbers, and uh, verbal or language skills. And so those tend to be emphasized in education. Now what Odie has brought up, thank you Odie, are different kinds of intelligence. For example, the intelligence that, that signals when you should take a nap is a very important kind of intelligence, mm -hmm. which can be quite missed in the former kind of intelligence. You can be very smart, book smart, with, with words or with numbers and not know when to take a nap. Mm. I've just been reading research this week that looks at the centrality of sleep, not only to recovery, mm. but to longevity in terms of living long lives. Wow. And that, uh, I was thinking of a friend of mine in graduate school who will go unnamed, who always aggravated the heck out of many of his classmates, including moi, is that he was able to get by on about four hours of sleep. And I was wow. in a six-year doctoral program, and so I got to watch him for six years. And he was able to get by on very little sleep. In fact, he and I would play tennis every Saturday morning with another uh, two of our buddies in the program down at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. They had tennis courts down there. And he could come in after four hours of sleep and play really competitive tennis. So some people are wired that way. Wow. But I was thinking yeah. of him when I was reading this research this week, is that as a long-term proposition for most human beings, Four hours of sleep is just not sufficient for the body and for the psyche to kind of reconsolidate, heal, build, uh, et cetera, uh, uh, restore energy. Mm -hmm. And so the, the articles I read were talking about seven to nine hours of sleep. Mm -hmm. And if that includes naps for certain people, and I, yeah. I, I love taking naps when I'm able to do that, <laughs> it really is about restoring bodily, uh, physical energy as well as mental psychological mm -hmm. energy, and so <clears throat> it's an important intelligence to have. Yeah. It's really not dispensable. So uh, some people will talk about this in terms of body intelligence. Um, there's another kind of body intelligence uh, that Howard Gardner talks about. When he talks about multiple intelligences, he certainly talks about academic intelligence. He talks about athletic intelligence. Mm -hmm. And so you, you no doubt have known people that are better or worse than you at athletic events. Mm -hmm. And some people are preternaturally gifted no matter what they pick up in terms of a sport. <laughs> it can be the first time they've played it and they're just good at it mm -hmm. and they only get better. And so he talks about that. Some people have athletic or I think he calls it specifically kinesthetic intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, there are other kinds of intelligence and it's one of them is implied, uh, well, actually a couple of them are implied in something you said about, I think you started by talking about talked about knowledge, but you talked, did you use the word wisdom? Experience. Experience, that was yeah. it. It was experience. The same thing, right? Is that there's a certain kind of knowledge that comes through experience yeah. that definitely relates to intelligence, and we will oftentimes call that like street smarts. Mm -hmm. There's book smarts and there's street smarts. And in, in the last few decades in psychology, there's been an interest in studying mm -hmm. what people call street smarts. Mm. And there's different uh, angles on street smarts, but here's a couple of them. One is to look at emotional intelligence, which mm -hmm. is how well do you know yourself, Odie? How well do I know myself? Mm -hmm. And there's a kind of street smarts that you don't really learn about yourself in books directly. Mm -hmm. More directly, you have to be able to access your inner world. And mm -hmm. so that would be a kind of an emotional intelligence that helps you to read your own emotions that translates to another kind of intelligence that's called uh, either social intelligence or interpersonal intelligence, mm. and that is being able to read other people. And so you can see how street smarts is being able to come into a situation and size it up. Yeah. If you're a salesperson, can I, can I make a sale here? If it's a situation that there's danger that might be implicit in it, can I pick up on cues that say that this isn't safe and I need to vamoose? Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, mm. I'm thinking of a story as you're mentioning this. I remember mm. uh, a few years ago, I won't give too much detail, but Pretty much, I had just started working at this uh, uh, call center, and I was uh, I started getting to know one of my coworkers, and uh, he had an injury on his hand, and I asked him, mm -hmm. "Oh, how'd you how'd you do that?" Mm -hmm. And so he gave me the story of how how that happened, mm -hmm. and then I think it was maybe a week or two ago, after he told me the story, uh, we were at lunch with a group of other people. And somebody else asked him mm -hmm. how he got the injury on his hand, but he changed up his story. Mm -hmm. So as soon mm -hmm. as that happened, I was just like, I need to be careful with this person. Mm -hmm. And then uh, five, maybe five years later, 
uh, another coworker that I've talked to about this certain person mm-hmm. um, that I told him after that, like, be careful with that guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he told me, hey, guess what? This guy is in jail because he was stealing from people <laughs> or something like that. So I was just like, wow. That's you know, good. It's, good. It's crazy uh, that <clears throat> that intuition that certain people have, not saying that I have that, but that was yeah. a situation where that did happen. So you tell yeah, me, saying that's that, good. the that's way you explained it. That's was like, good. Huh. Yeah, that's good. It's a perfect example of it. And it served you, didn't it? It oh, served yeah. you to be intelligent that way. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a, that's a perfect example. You know, you use the word intuition, and there's another kind of intelligence that's right up against social and emotional intelligence. And it's actually, there's, there are actually uh, uh, books out on this now and research on this. It's referred to as spiritual intelligence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's different ways of talking about it because it's looking at spiritual intelligence kind of across, across religious forms, across denominations. Mm-hmm. And one of the terms that's used is that people that have spiritual intelligence have a very keenly developed uh, intuitive mm-hmm. uh, set of skills and I don't know how to divvy this up for you but it's but I know that you value spirituality for one thing but Mm -hmm. you kind of trust your instincts or your intuitions and that's actually being kind of separated out as another variable Mm -hmm. in looking at in terms of spiritual or intuitive intelligence Mm -hmm. yeah that's a perfect example of it there are other kinds in fact uh, Howard Gardner talks about I think 24 different kinds of intelligence Mm -hmm. and makes the point it gives you an idea of how many there are. Also makes the point that it's really quite infinite. He just mm. selects 24 that seem like to be the most important ones. Right. I'll mention a couple more that he mentions. One that he talks about is creative intelligence, mm-hmm. and that would be uh, that would manifest, for example, as a kind of artistic intelligence. And so some people are very well developed, maybe very early on, have a certain kind of genius for bringing things together in a novel way, a creative way. And so they're gifted with creative intelligence. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, there's one other kind that I want to add uh, uh, to. We discussed most of these, if not all of them, uh, a few weeks ago in a presentation that we gave here, a podcast that we gave. But there's one that I really want to focus on today, and it will be central to our talking about um, uh, intelligences as well as how they relate to recovery. And this is moral intelligence. <clears throat> I've spoken about this on a few different occasions, but this, this has to do with our ethical values. And um, uh, there's been a ton of research that's been done on how it is that somebody can be very, very bright intellectually. Let, let's just say that guy you worked with. Mm-hmm. Let's just say he was very bright in an academic kind of way. But you might question him in terms of his morality. Mm. In fact, you sounds like you would definitely question him if oh, yeah. he's stealing from people. And mm. so you get people that are disproportionately high in certain intelligences, mm-hmm. let's say academic intelligence, but low in other ones, like mm. moral intelligence. Mm-hmm. And now we get ourselves into something that's directly related to recovery. Before we do that, let me ask if I can have uh, Austin bring up a slide here. That slide right there, Austin, that next slide. That's perfect. If you take a look at this slide, um, I'll try to explain it here. It's, I hope that it's visible to you all. Howard Gardner, who we've been talking about, looks at multiple intelligences, and he, there's four listed across here at the bottom of this diagram. There's four intelligences out of those we've selected. Cognitive intelligence, which would relate to that first kind, the kind of book smarts. Mm-hmm. Interpersonal intelligence, we've talked about, your ability to kind of read a situation. Emotional intelligence, to have self-awareness. Mm-hmm. And then fourthly, moral intelligence. So each one of those is listed across the bottom of this graph or this diagram. Now on the left-hand side, you'll see levels of consciousness. And for shorthand, we'll just call that levels. And this has to do with how developed each one of those intelligences uh, is. Mm -hmm. And so in order to unpack this, I have to talk about how it is that psychology uh, would uh, analyze uh, the development or the progression of any one of these lines of intelligence. So we're going to do a quick lesson on English here, okay? okay? Most of us probably don't remember when we learned this, but it's implicit in our training in language growing up as well as learning it in school. If we look at three different perspectives, just kind of stick with me for a second. I'm asking mm-hmm. Odie to do this too. If you think of a first-person perspective, what is a first-person perspective? What is that? Do you have an association to... If you're looking at something from a first-person perspective, what is that? The first thing that came to mind is looking at looking at a certain situation through my own eyes. Yes, so, yeah, that's yeah. exactly it. First person is you. Yeah, exactly. And, and for shorthand, we'll say I, me, mine. It has to do with mm-hmm. me. It's very important. So, for example, if I use a sentence, I walk out the door, 
I is first person and uh, the verb is walking. I'm walking out the door, but it's first person singular. Mm. So if you learn a foreign language, I learned most that I know about English grammar by studying German. <laughs> Because I didn't learn this stuff growing up, you just learn you 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 learn the language. There's kind of an implicit uh, structure to language growing up, but you don't have parents saying, "Okay, okay, uh, Odie and Bobby, we're going to talk about first person singular yeah. today." You don't learn that. But when you're learning a new language, which for me was German, and then later was ancient Greek, you have to learn how each one of these things is organized. So first person singular would be I, me, mine. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, the way that psychology talks about uh, first person is it's egocentric. Mm-hmm. And that's a big word for just meaning I-centered. Mm-hmm. Ego really means I in Latin. It's I-centered, I-centered. Mm-hmm. So that's first person perspective. We will apply this to these levels in just a second. First person. Second person. Do you have any idea what second person is? What do you associate to the second person perspective? Uh, the perspective coming from somebody else yes. other than yourself. Yeah, yeah. In fact, it's you. So if it's if if you're the I, mm-hmm. then I'm the you to the I. So okay. it's I and I, Bob, I and you. So uh, what's implied in second person, which just has to do with you, is that if it's you and I, then it's we, it's mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. And so second per- person perspective includes you and also us. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. So far, yeah. and so if a first person pers- perspective is egocentric, mm-hmm. a second person perspective is ethnocentric. Ethno. That is, we're kin. It's our group. <laughs> if we want to get, if we want to get uh, uh, really kind of territorial about it, it's mm. it's us, us, you and me, against them. Yeah. Us versus them. Okay. So that's a second person perspective. And then finally, third person perspective. Do you have any associations to third person? I would. The I think of video game terms when it comes to that. It's like, what, what does that mean in video games? So in video games, third person would be your you're seeing, you're controlling uh, the other, like a character. Yes. And you're seeing everything around. Yes. So it's not just like you being inside of the character, uh-huh. you're outside yeah. uh, different characters. That's and you're perfect. just like controlling. That's perfect. That's perfect. So, yeah, if, so third person, you're abstracted from the person. You're not actually seeing through their eyes. Mm-hmm. You're watching them and you're watching them interact with the environment. Yes, and so. exactly. That sounds perfect to me. Yeah. So, whether it's language or video games, this works. Mm-hmm. Okay. Third person really is if first person is I, mm-hmm. if second person is I and you or we, then third person looks at things objectively or at arm's length, like you're saying with video mm-hmm. games. And so you can actually say third person looks at that as an it, mm-hmm. as okay. an it, yeah. or a he or a she. But it looks at it at arm's length. It looks at it abstractly. So you're not actually looking through his or her eyes. You're looking at them as they're interacting with the environment. Okay. And so it's tricky to talk about it this way, but if you look at things uh, from a third-person perspective, you're not identified with, with that figure the same way as if you're looking through their eyes. Mm-hmm. If we talk about this in terms of human beings, if it's, if it's egocentric I mm-hmm. or ethnocentric we, mm-hmm. then if I look at things from a third-person perspective, people that aren't our kin actually uh, it's all of us. Mm, it's all yeah. of us. It's you and that character. It's you and that character. And it's really not I and you. It's I and him. I and it. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Third yeah. person turns it into he, she, or it. Mm-hmm. This is tricky to talk about it. When we apply it, it'll make more sense. But if we, if we just for summary, first person is egocentric, I. Mm-hmm. I, me, mine. Second person is you or we. And it's us against them. Third person is really wrapping your arms around all of that. We're going to call it the world, so we're going to call it world-centric. Mm. Egocentric, ethnocentric, world-centric. And world-centric means all around the globe or all, all around whatever is in our perception. Mm-hmm. And that means all of us, mm-hmm. you and the figures out, out there playing, mm-hmm. third person. So uh, <laughs> uh, I think we probably all speak this easier than we analyze it. So I'll own up to that. So if we think about these three different perspectives, and then and, and what I want to do next is I want to tie back to this diagram of Howard Gardner's, and I want to ask us a question mm-hmm. in terms of what happens in addiction, mm-hmm. and specifically what I want to look at is I want to look at moral intelligence. We talked about these four different kinds of intelligence in this diagram, cognitive intelligence, interpersonal intelligence, emotional intelligence, and moral intelligence. Mm-hmm. They're all relevant. 
But in addiction, we want to ask a question, what happens in terms of our ability to be higher or lower on each one of these bars? Would you mind bringing that graph up again if it's not there? Thank you, sir. We're getting there, and there she be. Okay, there it is, thank you, okay. So if we look at this graph here, let's, let's assume, let's assume that you and I start off and we're not addicted, and mm -hmm. let's assume that across all of those intelligences that were relatively high, we're able mm -hmm. to, to interact with, with uh, concepts, that is cognitive intelligence, mm -hmm. as well as with others, mm -hmm. as well as with ourselves, as well as with our values, from let's say a third person perspective, which is inclusive of all. To put this in practical terms, in terms of morality, it's not that I care just about myself, it's not that I care just about my kin, mm -hmm. it is that I care about human beings. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I move towards that kind of compassion, which is the heart of, uh, at the heart of any religion, including Christianity, mm -hmm. is that you think about stories, because I know of your own background, right. you think of Jesus's messages about accepting those that others would reject, mm -hmm. whether they were of a lower class or of a different religion, or of a different gender, or were diseased, or I mean, all the ways that he got his arms around to all people. That's, that's, that's like the epitome of world-centric morality. Yeah. And so on a good day, let's say Bob and Odie are able to do that, okay? Mm -hmm. But let's say it's no longer a good day, okay? okay. <laughs> so what happens in active addiction is this, is that these, these uh, columns that we've seen that represent our massive intelligence, they begin to slip and slide. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes the ones that, that begin to give include our connection to other people, mm -hmm. include our ability to be with our own feelings in a way that is um, uh, gracious towards ourselves, and particularly in terms of living in accordance with our values. Mm -hmm. And so what will happen, as you see in this diagram, is that the, the three intelligences to, to the right all begin to slide. Mm -hmm. I say that the one on the left doesn't necessarily slide. There are plenty of people that can actually continue to function. Sometimes it's called a functioning alcoholic or a functioning addict. Mm -hmm. Continue to function like in a workplace mm -hmm. or an academic place. That's not where it shows up. It'll show up in relationships and in terms of living true to their moral values. Mm -hmm. Those will tend to slide. Does that make sense so yeah. far? Okay. Yeah. Um, thought about. Uh, I don't know if I saw this in a movie or if this actually happened, but I've heard. Maybe I heard it on a podcast or something. But I've heard of somebody. Oh, it was a testimony actually. Sorry for jumping yeah, back and forth. But somebody good. gave a, a testimony, and they explained how they were. I think they were addicted to heroin. Okay. And they explained how that they would do do what they do yes. like either after work or during the weekend yes. and then they would go into work perfectly fine yeah or there'd be days where they actually would go into work that way yeah but they could still function yeah. Yeah. and still yeah. do their work yeah. Yeah. so it's so you can get by with certain yeah. things that you've overlearned you mm -hmm. know for example something that you tasks that you do in the job that let's say that you can do those on automatic pilot right automatic pilot to a certain extent may continue depends on how severe the addiction is, right. but you can get by, hence the idea of functioning. Mm -hmm. I'm functioning, which is actually what feeds into part of the denial for anybody mm -hmm. in addiction mm -hmm. is, I seem to be getting, getting by okay, I'm doing work okay, or mm -hmm. I'm making it in school, I'm not failing yet in yeah. school. The problem <laughs> is, is these, others, these other areas begin to suffer. Yeah, so what begins to suffer are these two other perspectives, right. is that third person perspective begins to drop out. Mm -hmm. And so I'm gonna put this in an interpersonal way, and I'll just use you and me as an example. Mm -hmm. Let's say that we're friends and I move into addiction. Mm -hmm. And so there's a way that I will have been loyal to you and also kind to other people. Mm -hmm. And as I move into addiction, and I'll explain the brain behind this in just a second. As I move into addiction, I began to exhibit more and more insensitivities, insensitivities to other people. Mm -hmm. And you notice that. You go, Bob, what's going on? You're not usually cruel or judgmental or bigoted. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you start noticing kind of rough edges around that. And that would be, I'm slipping in terms of that third person mm. moral dimension mm -hmm. as well as interpersonal dimension. Right. And then all of a sudden you say, Bob, I'm worried about you and I turn it towards you now. Mm. I turn it towards you and I start throwing knives at you, so to speak. And so now it's not only third person that suffered, it's actually cut into the second person. I'm even going against the we. Mm. And pushed far enough, addiction will move eventually into the, the, the egocentric part. The, specifically egocentric exactly yeah. that's all I am I care about myself mm -hmm. Makes sense. and uh, when I when I speak to uh, young men and women early in recovery from addiction there'll be no one in the room 
that is immune to this. Everyone can acknowledge, yeah, yeah. That's, that's eventually where it ended up for Absolutely. me. It doesn't matter if the addiction is the substance or the behavior. It becomes more and more, to put it in this language, it becomes more and more selfish. Yeah. It becomes more and more kind of encapsulated in itself. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It reminds me uh, of, I had a falling out with a really good friend for that same reason. Okay. You know, it, it started out... Um, to, just to give like an overview, I wanted yeah. him to pretty much move in uh, t- to over here in California, and it just didn't work out. But I never thought like of the consequences of like, okay, well, this might happen, that might happen. I was just thinking, well, you know, I'm going to have my best friend over here. Yes, That's all yeah, that matters. Yes, yes. I am going to have my best friend here. Yeah. I don't care what he thinks. Mm. I don't care mm. what this other person yeah. thinks. Yeah. He's going to yeah. hang out with yeah. me yeah. every day. So yeah. Yeah. it just never worked out. Yeah. So. It's not to say that we can that, that it's only addiction that will move us into this. If you think about it, I don't know the, the situation with your friend, but right. if, if something really matters to us or, or my way of thinking, if I really get activated emotionally mm-hmm. by something, so you say something that nine out of ten people wouldn't react to it, but I react to it. It touches like a sore spot for me. Mm-hmm. When I move into that, I'm going to move more and more inclined to move into a selfish place. Mm-hmm. And so I'll forget that we're friends and I'll lash out at you. Right. Uh, and so it doesn't require for me to be addicted. I want to pause for a second and talk about what happens in the brain mm-hmm. to say why it's specifically of interest when we're talking about addiction. And then we'll look at possible solutions to this in recovery mm-hmm. is that the part of me that cares about other people as well as thank you I'll check that out in just a second the part of me that cares about other people as well as the part of me that cares about living true to my values mm-hmm. requires a fully functioning frontal cortex which right. is the front part of my brain and in active addiction mm-hmm. as in high emotional activation that part goes dark that part goes offline and so what I'm left with is the midbrain in between my ears. The midbrain is the emotional center of the brain. It's also connected to survival. Mm -hmm. So you can see why it moves into being selfish, so to speak, because now my friend moving out here relates Mm -hmm. to my survival. I I need him, and there's no way that I... I, Eventually we'll get to a place where we don't care what it is for him. Mm -hmm. We care what it is for us. Or all the other examples we could come up with. And so the way it goes in the brain is the qualities that require for those bars of intelligence to be high for Odie and Bob, mm-hmm. they require fully functioning frontal lobes. And because addiction is related to the reward center of the brain, which is connected to our emotions, mm-hmm. is that that part operates, this part goes dark, this part goes alive, and soon enough we begin to slide in terms of our own emotional intelligence, mm-hmm. our interpersonal intelligence, our moral intelligence of operating in the world. Mm-hmm. And so we move from being able to access third person down to only second person, down to only first person. Yeah. And honestly, most of the people I work with know what it's like to be in first person, and they're trying to evolve out of that. It's good news, bad news. The mm-hmm. bad news is that first person is really limiting. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, in some ways, it's dangerous to be around it. The good news is the brain is marvelously resilient. And so if I can break the stranglehold of addiction, the brain will more often than not recover full functioning. Mm-hmm. And so when I say grow back up in recovery, I mean that. I just, I just met with a group today, and I, and I put it out there. I said, I'm assuming, as we sit here with a dozen or 15 men, I guess, mm-hmm. I'm assuming that all of us in this room, before we were actively addicted, were caring towards other people. Mm-hmm. And I said, I could be wrong. There could be some exceptions. There could yeah. be, honestly, there could be, and I wasn't just saying it. Mm-hmm. There could be some people here who have never been kind to other people, but I'm not assuming that. Some of these men are new, so I don't know them, but all the men that I do know, I know have kindness in them, have consideration, have an ethical core in them, because we discuss this in some way a couple of times a week. But having said that, it doesn't matter what your morality was ahead of time or mm-hmm. mine, is that addiction will negate or trump that, reduce mm-hmm. that, and will end up doing things that violate where we were before. Mm-hmm. So the goal is, what can I do? I really, I, in fact, I had one client today say, what I need to do is just have somebody, you know, nail my foot to the ground so I can get sober. Because <laughs> if yeah. I can get sober, that will come back. Mm-hmm. And if you had it before, it will come back. You have to grow it back. You have mm-hmm. to grow it back up or grow, yeah. to grow back up in our language. Mm-hmm. Let me see. There's a comment here. Somebody says, I remember growing up thinking that if someone was cognitively intelligent, then they would automatically be intelligent every way, including being morally good. I grew up that same way. Did you grow up that way? Yeah. I grew up that <laughs> same way. I'll give you an example of it that comes close to home. (laughs) I have two very intelligent parents. I was really blessed with really intelligent parents. 
And hence, my siblings were intelligent. And hence, I was blessed with a fair bit of intelligence. And so I'll not talk about my parents anymore, and I won't talk about my siblings, but I'll talk about me. It was so painful for me to realize in my own active addiction that whatever intelligence I had, that first one, cognitive intelligence, mm -hmm. did not pertain to the, all the other kinds of intelligence. <laughs> and so I began to do things that I thought were unthinkable. In fact, before I became addicted, I, I could not imagine how somebody could do something so stupid as what I ended up doing yeah. uh, repeatedly. Yeah. And so I could not understand that. And so it takes either a lot of emotional intelligence to search mm -hmm. one's soul to see where it is we can get caught in these uh, potholes, is what I call them in the psyche, where you get caught and all of a sudden you're doing things that are against yourself. Mm -hmm. And or active addiction, because addiction really levels us out mm -hmm. very rapidly for most people, especially more serious addiction, which is what I experienced. Mm -hmm. And so my sense of people being smart, like my parents or like my siblings or like myself, mm -hmm. was humbled radically <laughs> by how stupid I could be in addiction, yeah. and, it, and it's really very, very humbling. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that's a common, I appreciate this this uh, comment, I think it's a common misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. And and in fact, in fact, one of the comments that came up today in the group was, have you ever had, we were talking in the group openly, these are men who are in early recovery, have you ever had somebody say, what kind of person would do that? Mm -hmm. Or some version of that. A variation of that would be, how could you be so stupid? Mm -hmm. There's tons of variations, but that gets at the essence of it. And so we were entertaining that question. And this group, because we've been together for a while, oh, I can tell you how it's possible to be that stupid. <laughs> I can tell you what kind of person does that. And the answer is a person in active addiction. Mm -hmm. A person in active addiction, I don't care how moral you were before. I don't care how smart you were, book smart is it dumbs us down and does mm -hmm. it very quickly. Yeah. And the way to understand that without getting into moral judgments per se, I think there is a morality. I don't think it's okay to do the things that happen in active addiction. Right. But I think to talk about somebody stopping doing that while they're still addicted doesn't make any sense mm -hmm. because the part of my brain that would register that I need to stop needs to be back online. So yeah. I've got to interrupt the addictive process. Mm -hmm. And uh, once that's been interrupted, then I can recover. And often, honestly, what happens to people, oftentimes in early recovery, is that they begin to deeply regret what they did when they were mm -hmm. in active addiction, because yeah. they were doing it kind of on automatic pilot. Mm -hmm. I sat earlier today with a gentleman who wept throughout our conversation, mm -hmm. and the weeping was a function of how much pain he's caused others as well as how much loss there is to himself mm -hmm. for all the years lost in active addiction. Yeah. That only comes, or that primarily would be activated in sobriety. Because mm -hmm. now the part of the brain that can actually look back on that and regret that, because it's a violation of one's reason for being here on this planet, yeah. when that comes on board, there's a lot of grief to mm -hmm. be, to be uh, uh, expressed. Oh yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, yeah. I completely agree with that, especially on on my end, personally, that's that's how it was, mm -hmm. like a, a year, a year after, yes, you know, being sober, yeah. so to speak. Yes, yeah. Uh, just thinking back and yeah. just how, just thinking how s certain situations could have been different mm -hmm. if I would have obviously done things differently, mm -hmm. but uh, that sense of regret. But nevertheless, the sense of uh, being thankful and grateful to having having that sobriety and knowing that yes, yeah. uh, things can turn around. Yeah. Uh, yeah. may take some time, but, yeah. you know, definitely turn around. Yeah. As you were talking, I was thinking what you're modeling, Odie, is a kind of emotional intelligence mm -hmm. to be able to reflect. It takes a kind of emotional intelligence to reflect with integrity on one's grief, <clears throat> on one's limitations, what psychology calls one's shadow, to be yeah. able to own one's shadow and to grieve the the suffering it's caused you or caused other people that you care about. It takes a kind of emotional intelligence and uh, fortitude, and I would say courage, mm. to be able to hold that. And that courage and that fortitude and that intelligence is only afforded with a non-addictive brain. Mm. <clears throat> I don't want to reduce our conversation down to brain, mm -hmm. nor do I want to exclude the fact that the brain really matters mm. <laughs> in all of this. So what is the goal then? Well, we've already established the goal is to grow back up in recovery. Is If in addiction I grow down mm -hmm. <laughs> or backwards, Austin asked before we began today, he wanted to send out a little quiz, a poll, and that is how many of you have uh, uh, stepped backwards? How many of you have backslid? How many of you have uh, 
uh, gone down in terms of intelligence. If we look at this diagram, how many of you have felt your intelligence go down? And I'm hoping that if you have any relationship to addiction in your own life, and even honesty with relationships that have been really relationships uh, causing a lot of reactivity, is that is it will all be able to identify how it is that given a set, certain set of circumstances, I'm going to pick addiction as one of them, mm -hmm. is that we, we begin to lose traction and begin to uh, regress. We mm -hmm. begin to uh, diminish in terms of our intelligence. And so the goal is if, if, that's, if, if addiction makes me grow down, I don't think that's a phrase, but we're going to use it, grow down, then we want to grow back up, and that's really the goal. Um, I want to ask for us to engage in an exercise for the next minute or two. We've talked about, oh, about a half a dozen intelligences today, if we include the earlier conversation with Odie. This will apply particularly if you're in recovery from addiction or if you have a loved one in recovery from addiction. And the question is this, where do I need to give my attention? Which line of intelligence deserves my attention right now? We've talked about cognitive intelligence, we've talked about moral intelligence, interpersonal intelligence, emotional intelligence, and so on. Where do I need to give attention? So let's spend a minute just reflecting on that. If you're able to start journaling, I encourage you to write down a note or two and you can fill this out later after the podcast today. There's a great comment that's come in that I'll get to in a moment. I'll get to it in a moment. So I want to start just with you and me, Odie, to talk about it, if you don't mind, and I'll, I'll share as well. Okay. In your own experience around addiction and coming out of it in terms of recovering, mm -hmm. can you recall uh, uh, one of these arenas of your life where you felt like, I really need to uh, get to work on this. I need to grow this back up, so to speak. In terms of uh, intelligence? Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Definitely, obviously, the emotional part, the okay. emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. uh, just going back to uh, when I shared about the falling off that I had with, with my friend, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that wasn't just happening in, in my interpersonal relationships with other people, but it was also happening in intimate relationship, yeah, you know, with yeah. my now wife, yeah. and just seeing how that affected yeah. us together, mm -hmm. and um, just thinking back now how before I was very, very secluded, uh, I didn't really like talking to many people, you know, I was very kept to myself, mm -hmm. and I didn't really like hanging out with people outside of uh just my now wife and, and yeah, I yeah. and and now after like two years later now I look forward to that you know I get uh, filled emotionally yeah. hanging out with other people yeah. and yeah. Um, our calendar shows that as well <laughs> so um, I think that yeah. I, I saw that yeah. when when I was in the middle of recovery and I knew that I needed to take care of that. I wasn't really brought up that way of, oh, I need to take care of myself emotionally. Mm -hmm. It was just, uh, I guess, kind of subconsciously, it, it just worked worked out yeah. that way, yeah. emotionally yeah. and then yeah. spiritually. So it all yeah. kind of went yeah. hand in hand yeah. as well. What alerted you, do you think, to the emotional intelligence? I, I understand what you mean. Mm -hmm. you, weren't, you weren't raised to value that necessarily. Do you have a sense of that? How that? How that come come up for you? What made you aware of that? I think just how it was my relationship with with my then girlfriend now yeah. now wife. Mm -hmm. Just seeing how um, we were just hurting each other, yeah, like yeah. emotionally, yeah. you know. Yeah. And so just just seeing that and mm -hmm. understanding that I, I don't want to feel this way towards you, mm -hmm. and I don't want you to feel the way that you're feeling towards me, because mm -hmm. I know that's not who I am. Yeah. as a person yeah. and I know that's not who you are as a person yeah. so yeah. Yeah. I think just going through that um, back and forth battle with each other yeah. uh, definitely yeah. 
yeah. probably alerted us definitely that was if anything that was one of the the main things our relationship was what led us to seeking uh seeking christ like a yes. relationship with christ yes so, yeah um yeah. definitely that's what kind of red flagged yeah so yeah you remind me of today's group as you're talking Odie uh -huh. as I was struck by how several men in the group today talked about how it was family or love relationships intimate mm -hmm. relationships that really got their attention in terms mm -hmm. of wanting to turn their lives around right. is that <clears throat> it oftentimes starts with the relationships that matter the most to us that kind of it's kind of a wake-up call because yeah. like you with your your then girlfriend you can see that it's eroding your relationship. And mm -hmm. if you value the relationship, you might be willing to expend the energy it takes to turn it around. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't have that, you might have been, been less inclined to, to address the addiction in your life. Yeah. Certainly that's the case for me as well. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of talk in the various self-help support groups, for example, the 12-step program, mm -hmm. on making amends. Yep. You know, and, mm -hmm. and really going to people and trying to bridge to uh, forgiveness mm -hmm. as well as changing our lives. It's not, it's not a real amends if I'm not willing to change my behavior. Mm -hmm. I, kept, I was thinking of that as you were talking to how central it is to uh, the healing programs that address addiction. Um, yeah. I feel very parallel as I was listening to it. I just feel very parallel. It was like, um, I can remember in early recovery for me, it was still dicey. Mm -hmm. It was still more like this as my brain and body and soul were recovering. Right. And then as they began to get more stable, I began to feel more reliable to myself. It was mm -hmm. clear that I needed to reach out and to make things right with people that mattered most to me in my life, just right. like for you. Mm -hmm. It also became important for me to cultivate uh, really a, a really kind of regular discipline of spiritual practice. Mm. So for me, in terms of, of spiritual readings and prayer and so on, that became that became really important to me. It was like non-optional, yeah. like, and so it was like it began to be committed towards uh, building and supporting a vital spirituality. I felt like that was important to me. Oh yeah, you talked about relationships, beginning to spend more time with people, mm -hmm. and certainly for me, in terms of not only wanting to apologize for things I had said and done, mm -hmm. but also to work to clear those out in my life so that I'm way less likely to ever do that again. Mm -hmm. you know? yeah. 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 There's a there's a comment or a question that came up. It looks like there's two here. Let me start with the first one. Where does the idea of having an inner child fit with this idea of growing up? My understanding is that we always have an inner child aspect that we don't outgrow. Can you grow up and keep your inner child healthy? It's a great question, and my answer is yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> All I mean by that is that I think in order to have a healthy relationship with Ourself across all of the ages, if you think about it developmentally, mm -hmm. requires a kind of emotional intelligence, and I would also dare say uh, interpersonal intelligence, a social intelligence that requires having an intact um, navigational system. And I think of that in, in, in a biological way, I think of that as being a brain that's fully intact. Mm -hmm. And addiction really compromises uh, my capacity to uh, take care of myself, which is emotional intelligence. And I would include in that the inner child, if you think of the inner child as being curious and creative mm -hmm. and kind yeah. and innocent, it's like those parts require a lot of very healthy boundaries and protection. And that takes full frontal lobe function, to put it in that way. And I think one of the things that happens for us, you were, it's implied in what you were saying, and I certainly hope it comes through in what I'm saying, is that I violated that inner child in addiction. Mm -hmm. Um, I've got images of myself from childhood that I carry with me in adulthood in terms of there are certain qualities that I really value about myself and they just kind of went offline during, during the worst of my active addiction. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so I would, when, when we talk about growing up, I don't mean to grow up and, and get rid of the inner child. It's like grow up to be able to protect and nurture and celebrate the inner child. So mm -hmm. I think it's a great question and that would be my response to it. It takes, it takes a lot of active parts in our being, active adults, active adolescents, <laughs> to uh, active wise old women and men to protect the inner child within us and that requires uh, a, lot of, a lot of maturity it seems like to me. Yeah. There's another uh, question. 
In early recovery, I had a weekly routine of assessing each important line of intelligence with the support of a buddy. So that would be each of those lines that we talked about, mm. you know, making sure uh, that we're doing okay with those and you were doing this with a buddy. Now I just occasionally check in to see it since if I need to put more attention in areas that are lacking. Okay. How do you suggest people work with these lines of intelligence over time? Um, let me answer that as we move forward in the presentation. A great comment, great question. And what it suggests is that what might work today, like what worked for you earliest in recovery, mm -hmm. might evolve over time. Right. And I would suggest that to our audience as well, is that um, um, our ways of hosting these various parts of ourselves, we're calling them lines of intelligence today, those well, may well transform over time, mm -hmm. and uh, necessarily so. So... Uh, the, the, question, the next question in the outline here is where do we start? And that's really implied in how do you suggest people work with these lines? How do we do that? Where do we start? I want to share with you, first of all, a synchronicity. A synchronicity is, is uh, something that looks coincidental that may not be such a coincidence. And I, so I, I typically look at things that happen that strike me as a coincidence as uh, being more than just happenstance. Mm. And so, for example, if you're in a faith tradition like Odie is, you probably look at this as God's timing. Mm -hmm. That would be an example of that. The term synchronicity was made famous by Carl Jung, the psychiatrist, and he talked about it in a very similar way. It's mm -hmm. really a sense of fate or destiny or God, the divine, coming in. And so I don't want to overdo this next example, but it is an example of what my daughter Amanda grew up calling a coinkadink. <laughs> and we would wink because she and I both had a sense that a coinkadink isn't necessarily a coinkadink. Um, I, uh, I think I've shared with you all that I swim nearly on a daily basis and just... Uh, recently, in the last week, I went swimming. I was preparing this material for today. I went swimming, and after swimming, I was a little bit achy. I, um, I went, there's a jacuzzi in this uh, community pool, and I sat down in the jacuzzi, and there was only one other person, a woman across the jacuzzi, and I noticed she, she was reading a book. And so I just sat there enjoying the jacuzzi, and then I looked over at the book, and it was a, it was a skinny book. And I thought, I wonder if I can guess what that book is. It was out of sight. I couldn't really see any of the words on the book. So I was looking at it, and then I started realizing, I think I know what that book is. And so I said, uh, um, are you reading The Four Agreements? And she said, yeah. And I said, I thought that was. I recognized it. <laughs> and so I sat there. I was just trying to be friendly, and that was into that conversation. That was into my friendliness. And then I paused for a second, and I said, could you do me a favor? And I said, would you mind? I said, I read that book, but it's been several years ago when it first came out, do you mind repeating to me, just reading to me what the four agreements are? I wasn't sure how this would land because it's kind of intrusive. It's like, can I just read my dad gum book and you leave me alone? But, but she was very kind to me and she read the four agreements to me. And as I was sitting there in the pool, I realized that those four agreements, you could do worse as a way to start in terms of how you address these lines of intelligence than the four agreements. And so I've, I've, I've got those here today. Austin's going to bring them up. They're actually listed um, uh, here in order. And she, these are the ones that she read. I'm going to have to read them, and it's microscopic on my notes. But these, this is exactly what she says. She says, the first agreement is be impeccable with your word. And it's really tied into what we've been talking about in terms of operating with integrity, telling the truth, being clear about that, not being unkind, mm -hmm. being impeccable with your word. Secondly, don't take anything personally. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Bless your heart. Oh, that's so nice, Austin. Don't take anything personally. That's so much better than this. Don't take anything personally. I'll tell you what, in active addiction, we take everything personally. Uh -huh. And why is that? The frontal lobes are what provide a buffer against taking everything personally. Mm. If you take away that buffer, all there's left is the emotional center, which is just the reactive self. And so don't take anything personally is a goal, I think, in recovery, is can I, can I develop the capacity to not take things quite so, so personally? And I think related right to that is the third one, which is don't make assumptions. So rather than assuming what's going on for you, how about if I inquire? And how about if I make clear as possible my communication so that you don't have to make assumptions about me uh, either. And then the, third one, the fourth one is my favorite one, which is just always do your best. Mm -hmm. That's these four agreements. I recommend the book. It's I already said it's a skinny book, and you can read it in a jacuzzi. Um, <laughs> just don't have me around because I'll inquire about it. Um, um, I was thinking that those four agreements aren't that dissimilar from the the heart of the ethical teachings of any religious tradition. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, for example, you have uh, the uh, the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. 
And there's a parallel to many of the Ten Commandments there. Or in the New Testament, you have the Beatitudes, hmm. Christ's Beatitudes. Mm -hmm. And they also relate to these kinds of, of attitudes that for agreements. And I think you can find this across traditions uh, for looking at how do I begin to rebuild my moral intelligence? Well, I think, like I say, I think you could take good instruction from the four agreements as a place to start. Let me be impeccable with my word. Let me not take things so personally. What's the third one? I have to look at it. Don't make Don't assumptions. Make assumptions. <laughs> i got to work on that one, obviously, because I can't even hold it in my mind. And the other is just to always try to do my best. I think that that's a good start. And I furthermore want to answer this question. I think this is from you, Angela, and if it is, it's a great question. How do you su suggest people work with these lines of intelligence? You started by talking about working with a buddy, and then over time you began to assess yourself. I think this is one of the geniuses or one of the real values, and we already referred to it, in the self-help support groups. Mm -hmm. The 12-step support groups in recovery, you have 12-step support groups. You have um, like AA mm -hmm. and NA, Al-Anon. You also have smart recovery. I'm very involved in refuge recovery. <clears throat> there are uh, all kinds of resources. Integral recovery, which I'm also involved in. All of these approaches have one thing in common, and that is supporting or creating what you're talking about, Angela, in terms of a, a buddy system or accountability. So that, you know, I'm sure that you had friends in the programs that you worked in mm -hmm. that supported you to make sure that you were straight with yourself. Yep. You know, we're honest with yourself. Yep. And early on, we actually need each other to kind of lean on each other. And then over time, we get to where we can stand on our own. Um, um, reminds me of that kind of training wheels on a bicycle is that it helps to have some support early on. And so I really advocate that. I think it's one of the real values of having accountability uh, in a 12-step support uh, group, for example. It's one of the values I find that every one of these traditions I just named has some idea of sponsorship, mm -hmm. where you have a mentor that you report to that tracks you as you work various steps or stages of your recovery. And so I think that that's another resource that ties right into this, is that we don't have to be an island as, as, we're, as we're doing this work. I want to suggest, as we do each week, uh, that there's hope. I want to mention something. When I was in graduate school and studying to become a psychologist, um, we studied the work of one of the primary students of what's called psychotherapy outcome research. He looks at outcomes of therapy and finds out what's effective. Hmm. And uh, this man's name was Jerome Frank. He was a psychologist, Jerome Frank, who developed what he called the demoralization hypothesis. And his idea was this, is that people come into therapy for all kinds of reasons. They come in for addiction, mm -hmm. they come in for depression, they come in for anxiety, they come in for PTSD, they come in for relationship problems, they come in for parenting problems, they come in for occupation. There's all kinds of things that people come to therapy for, for yeah. sure. But he says there's one common denominator. This is what Jerome Frank said. He says that common denominator is demoralization, mm. which is to say people come in most often when they're close to or already have given up hope. Mm. Is that uh, for most of us, we rely on ourselves, we rely on some friends, and when that's not working, okay, maybe I'll go see a therapist or a counselor right <laughs> now. And so in that spirit, what he said is that the... the, the, the uh, the seed to all effective psychotherapy, I said he's a psychotherapy outcome researcher, he's looking at what's effective. He says, no matter what the method is, and actually no, one, no matter what the presenting problem is, mm -hmm. is that hope must be restored. Mm -hmm. And so we talked about the installation of hope. And so each week when we finish up our podcast together, we talk about, about there being hope. And I believe that there is. And as I reflected on it this week, this is after, after my reflecting on it, this is after my jacuzzi experience with the four agreements, reflecting on that, is that the hope, it seems like to me, is that we are able to rebuild our very selves. If you think of ourselves as being, for, for today, as a combination of various kinds of intelligence, and the fact is, I said earlier that Odie and I are all high across all four of these and others. No, that's not the case, is that there's variation. Mm -hmm. You're higher in some than I am and vice versa. Uh, I've got really high drumming intelligence. <laughs> I don't know if that really counts. <laughs> it's a very specific kind of intelligence. You've got very high video game intelligence. And I can, I can assure you that I do not come close to your video game intelligence if you know to how, how to even 
play a video game, you're better than I am. So, so thus it goes. There's variation and so on. Mm. But it's looking at where it is that we're wanting to, uh, 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 wanting to make change, wanting to assist ourselves in making progress. It's where we're putting our attention. And as we said earlier in the exercise, where do I need to place my attention? I'll say this much, is that there's no one coming out of addiction who can uh, afford to ignore the dimension or the developmental line of moral intelligences that we've all slid there. There's an implied gift in this, and I want to emphasize this today, and that is, is that even though somebody might say, how could you think that, or how could you be so stupid? And I understand why people say that. I think for the most part, they're scared. Mm. It's horrible to see somebody that you love in addiction doing things that are destroying themselves and perhaps a relationship. Totally understand that. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is addiction does reduce us or regress us mm -hmm. along every developmental line more than likely, including eventually our cognitive developmental line. So you could say that addiction uh, is a regressive illness, and mm -hmm. that's true. And so the good news in this is that it doesn't mean that Odie's a bad person or that Bob's a bad person. Mm -hmm. What we want to do is we want to rebuild who you really are. Mm -hmm. That's why I say we rebuild our very selves, is that that's what you've done, yeah. and that's what you're committed to doing. The same for me. I want to be here. In fact, I, I'll finish with this. Is Today I asked in the group that I led, I said, what is it that you all say when you're doubting wanting to continue in recovery? These are people all early in recovery in a treatment center. And people had different answers. And a couple, of, a couple of three of the men said, I think of my family. Mm -hmm. I don't want to let my family down. Yeah. But I liked what one person said. He said, he, he said, he says, I think of myself. Hmm. And I said, well, say more. And he said, I want to be all of myself. And he says, I know that there's no way that's true in addiction. Hmm. Is I'm selling myself short. And he said, frankly, I'm sick of selling myself short. Hmm. And so when I, when, I, when, I, when I have moments of doubt, or when I have moments of shame where I judge myself, I think, doggone it, I want to make it around the bend on this because I really want to be all that God made me to be. I want mm -hmm. to be all of who mm -hmm. I am. And that's what we mean by being, uh, by, by rebuilding our very selves. Mm -hmm. I think it's possible. And I think it's, I think it's important maybe early on, especially to find support in rebuilding ourselves, to find support. And it's not just any support. It's, it's, it's support that actually is supportive because there's plenty of people that would judge you or me for being addicted. Mm -hmm. And there's some people that will actually do this. They'll be done with mm -hmm. us. We want to find people that actually see through yeah. your addiction or my addiction to who Odie really is, to mm -hmm. who Bob really is. Those people that have eyes to see, I want to be in their presence. Mm -hmm. And then I want to begin to rebuild myself from the ground up. Mm -hmm. And it's possible. The marvelous thing about this is that we're extremely resilient beings and that if we commit ourselves to recovery, um, and sustain that, that commitment is that the probability is very high is that you'll begin to grow across mm -hmm. all these dimensions we're talking about. And then you'll wake up one day and recognize yourself in the mirror for the first time in a long time. Mm -hmm. And that's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. Good stuff. Any final comments from you? Are we good to go? Uh, I think, I think you wrapped it up pretty okay. good. That's, okay. uh, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. Couldn't say it any better. Yeah, thank you. Thank, yeah. Thanks, Odie. Thanks for being here today. Yeah, thank you all for joining us today. I really appreciate your presence. If you began that exercise, I encourage you to continue that exercise in the spirit of Angela's comment here of uh, kind of checking in with yourself is why not set some benchmarks for yourself? I do this uh, myself. Um, uh, I, used to, I used to share this with others, and I used to actually track it in my calendar, and now it's just built in. But there are certain practices that I'm engaging in on a daily basis, including morning quiet time. I've already talked about mm -hmm. swimming um, uh, and the various activities of the day. There are certain things that I do. They're built into my routine, and it's important that, that I continue. I was reading an article this morning. I think it was in the New York Times. It was talking about building habits especially in the early morning. They were looking at people that's, uh, that are successful in the world and what are their mornings like. And what was interesting is it's variable, but every person they talked to, they looked at 300 different people, they all have something they do in the morning to take care of themselves. For some, mm -hmm. it's exercise. For some, it's meditation and prayer. 
For others, it's, uh, it's uh, working out in the garden or going for a walk, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But the point was, is that they do it every day. Mm-hmm. They do it every day. Okay. And uh, when they miss it, they don't beat themselves up, but it becomes habitual to where it's like, so this morning when I wake up, before I start anything else, I do what I do to kind of get things on track. Yeah. And it's built right into this for me. And so, mm. so some way to track it for ourselves and to have others engage with us that, that will join us in tracking what they're doing for themselves. Uh, let's all join together in rebuilding our various intelligences. We can all grow back up, and that's a good thing. So yeah. thank you for joining us. Well, next week what we'll be looking at is we'll be going back to the very roots of addiction. We'll be talking more about addiction, looking at the roots of it. So come back for, for that conversation next week. If you have any final comments or questions to Odie and me, you can send them to Austin, via, and he'll get those to us via uh, the Ask Addiction Specialist uh, uh, Facebook page. You can also go to YouTube. You can also go to Beginnings. Uh, you can also go to my website, and on my website is a way to, act, uh, to, to email me. It's right there. So it's just bobweathers.com. You can go to that. In any case, uh, I'd love to hear from you and love to respond if we can be helpful. If you like today, give it thumbs up or whatever you do online. I don't know. <laughs> say, yeah, it was good. And if not, uh, don't say anything, please. <laughs> no, no. We're glad that you joined us. Appreciate you being here. Come back and join us next week, and I wish you a... Uh, I wish you an intelligent week, okay? Take good care of yourself. Thank you.